This morning we start a five-week Christmas sermon series that we're excited about entitled, Why Jesus Came. And actually, as we look at the five texts and messages you're going to get the next five weeks, they're, they're really the who, what, where, when, and why of Jesus is coming. And so this morning, we're going to begin with the who, namely, who Jesus came for. And Jesus is going to answer that question on our text for this morning and inform us that he came for four specific types of people. And we'll examine each of those in turn this morning. And as we do, I encourage all of us to ask ourselves two basic questions throughout this morning as we go through. First of all, in what ways am I that poor, captive, blind, oppressed person in need of Christ's rescue? Which ways is this passage aimed at me? And secondly, who are the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed all around me? And how might Jesus be calling me to be his hands and feet in the broken world today and further his ministry to them? John Piper has this great quote, which I love. He says, everything that Jesus said and did in some sense is a twofold work. It is salvation for you and illustration to you. It's both salvation for and illustration to. We are simultaneously the ones in need of Jesus' rescue and redemption while also being the ones through whom he wants to bring that restoration to a broken world. And so I'm going to ask you, as you're able, to stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. We'll read uh, Luke 4, verses 16 through 21 together. I'll read it out loud and you can read along silently with me if you would. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up and read, and he took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would come and make this promise true in our own midst. This prophecy, Father, we ourselves are broken, enslaved, blind and oppressed, in need of open ears and open hearts, in need of your good news for the downcast this morning. And so would you come and speak the words that we need to hear to our hearts? Would you change them that we would leave here different people? It's in your son's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I think the temptation with this passage, and really with so many passages of Scripture, especially with Jesus, is to interpret this passage in one of four ways. And those four interpretations I want to show you are really based around how we answer two basic questions. First of all, what kind of rescue is Jesus really talking about here? Is it physical or is it spiritual rescue? And secondly, who is it for? Is it primarily for us or is it for others? 
So the first of these interpretations I'll call the social gospel interpretation. And really it, it says that this passage is all about physical rescue for others. It says Luke 4 can be interpreted this way. Let's be honest. There is real suffering in the world today. Famine, genocide, you name it. But we in America, and especially those of us in West County, St. Louis, we are insulated from most of that suffering. And so Jesus really came for the physically broken and oppressed. And, and what he's calling us to here in Luke 4 is for us to carry out and to further his mission of tangible healing to a physically and emotionally fractured world. The second interpretation I'll call the therapeutic interpretation. It's about Jesus bringing physical healing to you, to me, to us. Are you hurting? Are you tired? Are you broken? Downcast, depressed. Jesus wants to meet you wherever you are in the midst of it and bring you out of it. All right, this is 90% of the songs that get played on Joy FM. Rarely are they singing, if you really listen, rarely are they singing about spiritual brokenness, strictly speaking. It's not about sin. It's not about, oh God, woe is me because I've sinned against you and I stand justly condemned under your wrath. No, it's, oh God, woe is me because you've brought this really difficult thing into my life and yet I'm going to learn to trust you through the midst of it. And that's important. I mean, that we need those songs and we need those sermons to, to meet us in those really deep, dark places, the, the dark nights of the soul in our lives, because Jesus is there for us in those moments. But the repentance model says, yeah, but the real problem is not so much our physical brokenness, emotional, psychological, it's the spiritual. Right? All of that is symptomatic of, of the root physical, of the root spiritual problem at work in our hearts. Adam and Eve, the fall, sin. So what Jesus is really talking about here in Luke 4 is spiritual poverty. It's spiritual captivity. It's bondage to sin, spiritual blindness and oppression. And so my rescue is going to mean my repentance, right? I need, I need a heart that's transformed by the supernatural power of the gospel. And to that, the evangelical model is going to add, yeah, but it's not all about you. Remember, Jesus told us his blood was shed, poured out for the sins of many, Matthew 26. And his final words to us in Matthew 28 were to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so we should read Luke 4 here as a foreshadowing of our great commission call to carry on the spiritual rescue that Jesus came to bring to the ends of the earth. And so, four interpretations. My question for us this morning is what if Jesus is bigger than our models and interpretations and categories that we make for him? What if Jesus is bigger than our theological camps that we align ourselves into? What if Jesus is so good, like we just sang about, so good that he refuses to choose between the kinds of rescue that he wants to bring us? What if Jesus re rejects both the short-sightedness of the social gospel that emphasizes our physical healing at the expense of our eternal spiritual healing and yet rejects the short-sightedness of the evangelical interpretation that forgets at Christmas we don't celebrate a Jesus who came down incarnated as a church statement of faith or a theological doctrine. He came in a body for a reason. 
because he cares about the physical too. And he didn't only, if he only came to die on the cross, why wasn't he crucified as a baby? Why did he waste 30, 30 some odd years healing and feeding people? What if Jesus rejects both your sinful tendency to make this passage all about someone else who really needs the rescuing, as well as my own sinful tendency to make this passage all about me and forget that God's redemptive plan is so much bigger and grander in scale than my little world of one? What if Jesus looks at all of our multiple choice options that we give him on the grid there and says, E, all of the above? And so what I want to do this morning with you is I want to look um, at the four types of rescue that I think Jesus comes to bring for four different types of people that he's bringing it to. And if you're looking at your outline and you're feeling a 16-point sermon coming on and you're getting a little nervous and thinking, speaking of oppression and being held captive, <laughs> I want to set your mind at ease. I'm, I, I want to do three somewhat brief, I think, things with each of these four categories. First, I want to give us a working definition for how to understand that form of brokenness. Secondly, I want to prove to you from the Gospels themselves that Jesus shows us he's concerned with both the physical and spiritual dimensions of it. And thirdly, I want to challenge us with those two questions. How is this about me, and how is this about others who need me? Okay? And so before we dive into that, I have three very quick notes that don't fit into the outline, but they're too good to leave out when we're interpreting this passage. And so look at verse 16. The first is the importance of church. As was his custom, we hear, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. We can make a big pitch for church attendance, and we will in the new year for you. But if we're followers of Jesus, there's really only one reason that we should need, one excuse for being with God's people whenever they're gathered, because Jesus was. It was a priority for him, and so as his followers, it's a priority for us too. Secondly, the importance of Scripture in verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now we've got to understand, there was probably only one copy of the Isaiah scroll in the entire town of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. There would be no chapter or verse markings in it. In fact, there were no spacing between words, just a bunch of Hebrew letters on the page, and they start to look the same, I promise. And so we, when we understand this, we've got, to under, we've got to appreciate how deeply Jesus had studied and internalized and how much time he'd spent in God's Word to be able to just open up and start reading like this. And so again, we seek to do the same with God's Word. And thirdly, the importance of preaching in verse 20. In his first sermon ever here in Luke 4, Jesus preaches both the shortest and perhaps the best sermon of all time. Maybe there's a correlation you're thinking, I don't know. I'll try and keep it brief this morning. But picture this with me. The rabbi introduces him. He says, Brother Jesus is going to stand up now, and he's going to bring the message for us. And Jesus stands up, walks up to the pulpit. He reads the scripture text for the day from Isaiah 61 and 58. He rolls the scroll up. He hands it back to the rabbi, and he goes and he sits down. And he's seemingly fine to just let that be it. Let that be enough. His life is the sermon. Actions speak louder than words. But 
They don't understand him. They don't get it. And so they stare blankly at him. And I imagine the rabbi leaning in and nudging Jesus and saying, Brother Jesus, you did prepare a message for us to go with the scripture, didn't you? Now, their, their, their worship services would go on for a really long time, typically. These are people that celebrate the Sabbath. They don't have anywhere else to be. They'd be at church. So we got a lot of time to kill here, Jesus. Jesus says, how about something better than preaching a message? How about fulfilling one? How about fulfilling a message? I am the embodiment of Isaiah's prophecy, your long-awaited Messiah. So what does that mean for us today? It means four things. Let's look at them in turn. Number one, Jesus came for the poor. I think a good working definition of what it means to be poor is the external absence. Can you all read that? Okay, good. It's bigger back there than it is back there. Uh, the external absence of a need. Poverty is the external absence of, of an external need. So in the most literal sense, when I say the word poor, most of our minds typically go to money, the lack of currency that affords us our basic human physical necessities like food and shelter and clothing. But we can understand this spiritually as well. And, and we need to, we have to. Jesus is going to tell us we are spiritually poor. There is something outside of us, external to us, that we desperately need but that we don't innately possess. And so it must be given to us. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus constantly demonstrates his concern and care and his rescue and provision of those gifts that we need that he comes offering the poor, both physically and spiritually seeking. So let's look at them. We read in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry. Luke 6. Now Matthew's version is different here. Matthew says it's about being poor in spirit, and he emphasizes hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which we'll get to in a second with the spiritual. But in Luke, Jesus simply says, God bless you if you're poor. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, not if, but when you give to the needy. He instructs his disciples, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. He tells the rich young ruler, go sell all you have and give it to the poor, and your treasure will be in heaven instead. He says a similar thing to his disciples, and then he exhorts them to invite the poor to their parties. He performs miracles to feed the multitudes because he has compassion on them. He turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana. It's a physical thing, nothing spiritual about it. May, maybe most shocking of all, Jesus tells us the parable of the poor man and Lazarus in Luke 16 and the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Do you remember those two? Shocking, shocking for us, where the poor, sick Lazarus, beggar, sits outside the rich man's gate, and when they both die, the rich man goes to Hades and Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. We don't hear anything about Jesus or forgiveness of sins, or faith, or any of it. All we hear is that the one was comforted on this earth, and the other wasn't, and so God turns the tables in the afterlife. And similarly, in Matthew 25, we hear that Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, he's going to separate out the sheep who go to heaven from the goats who go to hell. And it doesn't say anything in that passage specifically about faith at all. All he says is, "'For I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, in prison.'" And you fed me, clothed me, gave me drink, welcomed me, came to visit me. That's it. Now, we can square that with the gospel. I don't want to preach heresy this morning. All right? We can read James, and, and we can understand how true, true faith leads to works. 
But these passages remind us that Jesus condemns our empty, fruitless, actionless, mere intellectual assent to some theological truths without really caring in a tangible way for the physical needs of the poor. And yet, if Jesus cares in that kind of way about our physical impoverishment, how much more so even does he care about our spiritual impoverishment? We already saw Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Indeed, even when Jesus himself was starving in the desert and tempted by Satan, he acknowledges that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And Jesus teaches us to think in the same way as him. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that's what he tells the Samaritan woman at the well too. Drink the eternal water that I come to give you. He says we're all born spiritually poor in need of this water. Our greatest need in life, what we need most and lack most, is a new heart, is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which he is willing to give us and desiring to give us without measure. But how does this happen? How does our spiritual rebirth happen? He tells us it's through faith in him. And yet, as he points out so often in the Gospels, the very thing that we need most, most, faith, is the very thing that we lack most. Oh, you of little faith. We need his provision of faith, Jesus' faith, for us. And how can we believe in a gospel that we haven't heard, Paul asked. And so we need preaching and teaching, too. Our spiritual food cut up into digestible little morsels for us. And Jesus does that as well. He preaches his message of God's eternally valuable kingdom, the treasure, a pearl of great price in parables. And he tells us this treasure is worth losing everything for. And indeed, if we're not willing to count everything else as lost to gain it, then we're not worthy of having it. All we have to do, and indeed all we can do, is to acknowledge both our deep need for his gift of grace and our severe unworthiness of it. In a word, Jesus desires our humility. Humility. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who is humbled will be exalted. And so, I invite us this morning to consider together who are the poor in our own midst, those in need of our provision, and in what ways are we poor and in need of the provision that only Jesus can bring. Illustration two and salvation four. First, the physical. I know better than to assume that just because we're a West County church that our only poverty here is spiritual. That's not, that's not the only message that we're preaching this morning. There, is, there are real physical material needs to be met right here within our own church family. And what a blessing it is that we get to help meet those. What a blessing. I praise God for that. What a beautiful biblical reflection of the church's calling. But that can't be the only opportunity that we take for meeting people's physical needs. It can't stop just with this church body. If you don't struggle with physical poverty, or frankly, even if you do, even if you're someone who benefits from the physical generosity of others at this church, let's face it, no one at West Hills lacks access to clean water and edible food, and vaccines for curable diseases, but millions, maybe billions of people around the world every day, that is their daily reality. 
abject, destitute poverty. And even the poorest among us would be considered rich by their standards. And God forbid, they become the Lazaruses begging at our gates, and we don't hear their cries. We must spur one another on to do more. OCC was a great success. Let's do more. Why limit it to the Christmas season? Missy, can we drop that middle C? Sharon, can we drop the middle C out and just make it Operation Child and just collect and give to needy children all through the year? Maybe they just got done collecting, so we'll, we'll maybe give them a little break and then we'll mobilize something like that. We'll be in touch with the details on that, but we've got, we've got to do more. Seriously, may we be known as a church at West Hills that gives beyond our physical means for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. Amen? And spiritually, if that's how Jesus wants us to give physically, how much more so spiritually? How much more so should we be passionate about meeting the abject spiritual poverty that exists all around us? We don't have to leave West County to encounter that, do we? In fact, we might be the most spiritually impoverished place of all. This might be the number one mission field, right? Because all around us, we see people who have everything in the world and yet, everything they have is just that, in the world. And in their spiritual bank accounts, there's not a cent to their name. Destitute poverty. Oh, for the eyes to see people the way Jesus saw people. He looked right through people and saw their tattered hearts just the way that we look at people physically and see their tattered clothes. He could see it like it was, they were wearing it on the outside. If we could see people through his spiritual eyes, I'm convinced that this poverty we live in would be too sickening, too disheartening, too embarrassing, downright embarrassing for us to continue to be the people of God and not respond by sharing the gospel. I still remember my first mission trip. I'll always remember my first mission trip to Guatemala when I was in high school. And we visited an orphanage right there in the middle of the city garbage dump where children lived in cardboard boxes and literally fought off vultures for their lunch, for their, for their one meal of the day, maybe the week. And I remember being embarrassed and ashamed to go back to the mission at night and to get fed dinner. I just said, can I like just save this and give this to them tomorrow? And we come here to church and we feast every Sunday we eat our fill of daily bread in our quiet times and in our life groups and in our men's ministries and in our women's ministries and in our work Bible studies and on and on and on and on. And meanwhile, most of the people around us that most of us interact with on an almost daily, maybe daily basis are literally dying of spiritual starvation all around us. Dying of spiritual starvation. That's, that's the challenge to us this morning. But what about the challenge to us personally? How about you? Maybe you're here and maybe you're not dying of starvation spiritually, but maybe you're malnourished. Maybe you're, you're underfed. Jesus came for you too. Take and eat. Not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father. It's here for you. Take and eat. Be nourished. Secondly, Jesus tells us that he came for the captives. What does it mean to be a captive? 
think it means to be under the external presence of an affliction. If poverty means not having something I need, then captivity means being trapped underneath something outside of me that I don't need. The opposite of a need, an affliction, be it physical or spiritual. And so we see Jesus demonstrating his great desire to set free the captives all over the Gospels. And just feel free to jot down any of these scripture references that you want to look at later. That's what those blanks are there for, or any thoughts that come to you. But physical captivity, the greatest physical captivity of all, of course, is death itself. Death perpetually hangs over us like a dark cloud, and yet time and time again in the Gospels, Jesus proves that he has the power to break even the chains of death as he brings the widow of Nain's son and Jairus' daughter and Lazarus all back from the dead, not to mention his own physical resurrection and those of the saints in Jerusalem that rise upon his crucifixion in Matthew 27. But Jesus wants to overturn not just these physical uh, uh, captivity holders in the afterlife, but those that hold us captive throughout our lives as well and our daily experience. He sets up his own reign and rule in stark contrast to the kingdoms of this world that beat down and oppress people. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, and you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over him, but it will not be so in, in my kingdom, not amongst my people. And yet while he condemns physical captivity, Jesus also tells his followers they are to expect their own physical subjugation while they're in this world. In fact, Jesus says we're blessed when we suffer for righteousness' sake, in the same way that he himself suffered at the hand of the unrighteous worldly powers that be. Expect it. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And still, as much as Jesus stands against physical oppression and bondage, for every warning about our physical bondage he offers, Jesus offers three more about our spiritual bondage. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He tells us he came for this very reason, to free the spiritual captives. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a price paid to redeem, to buy back a prisoner, a slave. And while he's even a child, a baby, it's foretold that Jesus will be the redemption of Jerusalem. But the danger is, he tells us, that many of us don't recognize our spiritual captivity. He tells a story of when he encounters this with the Pharisees. Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we, we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And just like us today, these first century Jews got so caught up in the question of their physical bondage and, and them expecting that kind of a Messiah that would free them from the oppression of Rome, that they totally were blinded to their spiritual bondage the more serious, insidious enslavement, how shackled they were in their own sin. But Jesus promises us redemption. He says, whoever believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. And he uses the physical resurrections he performs 
as opportunities to share this even more amazing news of our spiritual liberation that can be ours. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, yet he shall live. As the Apostle Paul would bear witness shortly after seeing this promise come to fruition in Christ's death and resurrection, Paul would say, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He's the first fruit of those who've been freed of this captivity. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit again then to a yoke of slavery. And so I ask us again this morning, where do we see physical bondage at work in our world today? What about you? What about in our midst? Let's make it 21st century. I read a CNN article just this last week entitled, People for Sale in Libya, Human Trafficking is a $32 billion a year business with an estimated 21 million people enslaved worldwide as we speak, in most cases children and in most cases for sexual exploitation. Unless we think this is an over-there problem, you should know there is an estimated 300,000 child prostitutes right here in the U.S. with our own beloved St. Louis atop the top 10 list that you don't want to be a part of. Not atop, but in the top 10. Whatever your political feelings about the Black Lives Matter movement, no one sitting here today is going to argue the fact that racism is alive and well in our communities. Anyone want to argue against that? And, and, and we have dear brothers and sisters sitting beside us this morning who could come up here right now and share story after story of how they've suffered mistreatment at the hand of a system that oppresses them, holds them in captivity, simply because of the color of their skin. That's the reality. A very real, palpable way they don't enjoy the same quality of freedom in this country that I do as a white man. And Jesus stands with them against that. It's wrong. And we must too. And speaking of being a white male, ladies, let's talk about this recent hashtag MeToo movement, this conversation that's happening in the broader society. Ladies, I won't ask you out of sensitivity this morning, but if I did ask you to raise your hands, if you've ever had your freedom personally threatened by a man due to sexual assault, harassment, or just plain old objectification, someone robbing you of your full humanity by reducing you to an object for their own personal desire and pleasure, I would be shocked if I asked that question, and if almost every single hand in the sanctuary didn't go up. I'd be shocked. Because that's a physical, emotional, psychological reality and form of bondage for almost probably half the world's population today. Captivity. And Jesus came to free us from it, to break it. What about domestic abuse? We just talked about this in my counseling in the church class the other day. And statistically speaking, it's almost impossible that we don't have at least a few couples here sitting here in the sanctuary this morning who are actively involved in an abusive relationship at home. This is the stuff we don't talk about as a church. We don't preach about this, but we have to. Because Jesus cares about it. if not physically, emotionally, psychologically abusive. And this word captive has a whole new, different connotation for you because you feel trapped in a very real sense in your marriage. 
And the list goes on and on. And this is serious, serious stuff. And I hope the fact that I only have time to skim the surface here, I hope that doesn't make you think that I'm taking this lightly. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this morning, that that's what we're here for as your pastors. We don't remind you of this enough, but we preach one day a week and we pastor seven days a week. That's, that's what we're here for, is because we care about this stuff because Jesus cares about this stuff. We take it with the utmost seriousness. And like Jesus did, we also, if we take physical captivity that seriously, how much more do we take spiritual captivity? Right? If the, if the physical manifestations are that serious, how much more are spiritual bondage? Because it's really the root cause of all our physical captivity too, isn't it? Why does human trafficking and domestic abuse and racial profiling, sexual harassment, why do these things exist in the first place? They're all spiritual issues. They're all heart issues, aren't they? They're issues that are fueled by hearts that are held captive by the death grip of sin. And we lobby and legislate. We can lobby and legislate all we want, and we should. We should do that. We should work for a more just and equitable society. But as long as sin still enslaves the hearts lying underneath the surface, we will not be addressing the root of the problem. We'll be making superficial changes. In church, lest we point fingers too quickly, let's ask ourselves, in what ways is my own sin still enslaved? Is my own heart still enslaved to sin? To its natural, selfish, sinful desires? Jesus came for you. Know that this morning. Jesus came for you. For freedom, Christ has set you free. It's time to leave that prison. Thirdly, Jesus came for the blind. To be blind means to have an internal absence of a need. Something inside me that shouldn't be there, that, that, sorry, that should be there that isn't. I need something inside me that's just not there. In the case of blindness, obviously, it's my physical sight. But once again, we suffer from an equally literal, even more dangerous spiritual blindness that Jesus is coming to warn us about, a desperate need for something inside me that is not there. We hear of Jesus giving sight to the blind some 10 or 12 times in the Gospels, but he also brings sound to the deaf, speech to the mute. He restores bodily function to the limp, the paralyzed, the invalid. Example after example of Jesus miraculously imparting some physical ability that had either been lost or never previously possessed by someone at all. But once again, as much as Jesus shows his concern for our physical infirmities, he shows an even greater concern for our spiritual ailments. And so often he uses the physical healings themselves as the very occasion for ministering to the person's more pressing spiritual blindness. After healing the man born blind in John 9, Jesus shifts the conversation then to talk about the spiritual. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see me may see, and those who may see, become blind. He's not talking about physically putting out people's eyes. It's spiritual. He does the same with a paralytic in Matthew 9. Only here he heals the even more important spiritual need first. We hear, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, my, your sins are forgiven. And only then, as an almost seeming afterthought, does Jesus heal him of his paralysis. Because in Jesus' mind, the real healing the real need has already been met. His sins have been forgiven. We see this connection time and time again. He heals the blind men in Matthew 9. He touched their eyes and says, according to your faith, may it be done unto you. And that's another theme that gets repeated in so many of these stories. Your faith has made you well. 
And the more I reread these stories this week, the more I kept wondering, is Jesus saying that their spiritual faith has resulted in their physical healing, or is he, is he even leave, leaving it at the level of the spirits and saying, your spiritual faith has made you spiritually well? The physical thing, it's, it's important to him, clearly, but not nearly as important. The, the deeper, eternal sense of being well is to be spiritually well. And so Jesus will say, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. Jesus tells us that he's our light in an otherwise utterly dark spiritually world. He is our light. And he not only shows us the way in our spiritual blindness, he is the way. Jesus makes a way, John 14, 6, for us. And he leaves us the Holy Spirit to give us new spiritual eyes to be able to see. We were like sheep going astray, lost and blind. And he sought us out and he brought us back home, the shepherd and overseer of our soul. What about us today? What about blindness today? Maybe you suffer from a very real, literal, physical ailment, disability. At the very least, I'm sure we all certainly no people have people close to us who do. Isn't it a great comfort to you, friends, to know that Jesus not only cares, but that he is a God of healing, that we worship the great physician who says, behold, I come making all things new. If not in this world, then in the world to come, he will make all things new. And that he gives us the gift of actually joining with him in that life-giving pursuit, from the time I was a young boy following my dad around on his clinical rounds in the hospital to my weekly conversations now with Shane and Mary Morgan at our life group about their medical school adventures, I've always had the utmost admiration for those in the medical field who are out on the front lines with God, fighting back the kingdom of hell in its physical expressions and manifestations in our world, right? Restoring ailing bodies. And yet, I joke with my Christian friends who are doctors that they must have flunked out of seminary because surely they must know that Jesus cares even more so about our spiritual ailments, our spiritual health. And as I watched, I rewatched these videos this last week. If you haven't seen the video of the 29 year old girl who receives a, uh, an inner ear transplant and hears her own voice for the first time, or the video of these new glasses for people who are colorblind that allows them to see color for the first time ever in their lives. Go home and watch them today. But as I rewatched them, the thought that kept coming back to me was, was the spiritual. Was that is exactly what Christ did for us spiritually at the moment of salvation. The hour I first believed. He opened my eyes. He opened my eyes, opened my ears to hear. A once dead heart is now beating. And how often we ought to think back to that moment with fresh tears of joy and gratitude in our hearts. How much empathy then we ought to have for those still walking, still stumbling in darkness. They need to see Jesus, friends. They need to see his light. We can't open their eyes for them. Only God can. But we can point them to Jesus. We can shine his light through us. And in some cases, we can take their hand and we can lead them to him physically, 
That's what they need. It may be exactly what they need. What an unbelievable blessing evangelism is. The prospect of being there in the waiting room to share in that joyous moment when someone's eyes are open and they see for the first time, hear their own voice, hear the voice of their Savior. Before we close with point number four, I I also want to plug one other gift that God gives us that we we neglect or underuse all too often, and that's each other. That's Christian community. How often in your life has God used a brother or sister to help open your eyes to a blind spot still present in your spiritual walk with the Lord? The truth is that while we were all once blind and now we see, the picture is still differing degrees of blurry for all of us. And so we all still have blind spots and we need each other to show one another the truth and love and to speak that to one another. And I want you to know, go on record, and I want you to know that I am thankful every day for this church, for West Hills, for doing that for me and especially for those of you who helped shed that light personally in my own life and speak that truth. And finally, number four, Jesus came for the oppressed. So if you've sensed the pattern, you've already filled in the blank, this is the internal presence of an affliction. Oppression is something inside me weighing me down. And because we're short on time and because this one is similar to both blindness and captivity, and Eli can just scroll through some of those slides so you can get a glimpse of some of these passages of Scripture. I can post this for you if you want to see them. Because it's similar enough to blindness and captivity, I'm not going to walk through each of these passages for us in depth and offer commentary like we have with the others. But I want to read you the very last two scripture references here on the list regarding Jesus' burden for our spiritual oppression. Where Jesus says, can we go to that last slide? Where Jesus says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus tells us, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, I want to leave you with a really personal question this morning. Have you come to realize yet just how helpless you are underneath the weight of your own sin? oppressed by your own pride, your lust, your envy, your anger, your addiction, just how sick you are and in need, in desperate, urgent need of a physician, spiritual physician. These are things that we dare not talk about in the church. We don't talk about them because it's uncomfortable. We don't like to admit they exist here. Alcoholism, pornography addiction, narcissism, a critical spirit that's led you to multiple divorces, that's piled on guilt and shame and regret on top of that. These are our realities. And and the reality is the statistics say the numbers aren't that different inside the church than they are outside the church. These are our realities. And yet, Jesus came to free us from oppression. The truth is we're all just as sick and poor, broken and oppressed, blind and enslaved, and in need of God's mercy. 
Brothers and sisters, hear the good news of the gospel today. Jesus has come for the poor, the helpless, the sinners like you and me. And the only thing you have to do, the only thing you can do to receive his free and undeserved gift of grace is to surrender your life to him. Humility. To decide that you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. So if that's your story this morning, if you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, hear the good news this morning. He is not against you. He is for you. He comes announcing the year of God's favor. Will you receive it this morning? Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you that you are good. You are oh so good, unbelievably merciful and gracious to us beyond our wildest deservings, certainly, but even our expectations, our longings. Father, break our spirits this morning. If anyone is is physically broken, oppressed, hurt, blind, captive, poor this morning, Father, may we be a church that sees that and recognizes that and and cares about that in the way that you have. comes alongside to bind up wounds and heal. We pray for your supernatural healing directly in their life as well, but Father, as much as we care about the physical, give us spiritual eyes and ears to see and hear. The brokenness, the oppression, the cries for help coming from the hearts of a people, a society all around us that needs to know you, your mercy. Father, if anyone here this morning finds that cry emanating from their own heart, Lord, I'm broken, I'm hurt, I'm tired, I'm sick, and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Oppressed under the guilt and shame and weight of my own sin, Father, if there's anyone here who needs to surrender that to you this morning, trust their life, their hope, their future, their salvation, and the only hands big enough to carry it, would you give them that spiritual faith to accept it, to accept your love and grace and mercy. thank you for being a God who is for the least of these because we know we are the least of these. We thank you for being for us and not against us. In Jesus' name we pray.